Welcome to episode 41 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Now, I know, John, that you want to talk about an open letter from Alberta's chief medical officer addressed to parents and guardians who are wondering whether they will vaccinate their children, ages 5 to 11, against COVID. But let's start with new business, that is, Justice Center business. It's my understanding that you have a new case and a new lawyer in Saskatchewan. Why don't you tell us about that? So last week, the uh, Justice Center Saskatchewan lawyer, Andre Memori, who joined us recently, has sent a legal warning letter to the University of Saskatchewan telling them that they should drop their mandatory vaccine policy or face a court challenge. Uh, we've also sent some letters as well, uh, warning shots across the bow to some of the Alberta universities and tentatively, we're looking at, at other universities as well. Um, the problem is universities are coercing and pressuring students into taking this new mRNA COVID vaccine. And this, and I'll elaborate a bit more, it's a violation of the Nuremberg Code of Medical Ethics. It's also a violation of the Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights. And... Uh, it is very troubling to pressure somebody into receiving a medical treatment. If a doctor performs surgery on you without your prior informed consent, that is considered to be assault and you can sue the doctor. If you as much as touch somebody without their consent, that is criminal code offense of assault. Touching somebody, applying any kind of force to somebody else without their consent is an assault. Injecting somebody. If you, Kevin, were kind of walking down the street with some, you know, with a needle full of some harmless saline solution, you know, even if what you were injecting into people was completely harmless. But if, if you were injecting something into people, uh, you would be criminally charged with assault. But would I be criminally charged if I said, well, you can have this 10 bucks if you let me jab you, is that assault? No. Could be. That's a good one. Uh, that's that's a good question. I, I think the College of Physicians and Surgeons might go after you for unauthorized practice of medicine. That's a possibility. Well, um, that's not really what I was trying to demonstrate with that. <laughs> I was if a doctor held ten bucks up and said, "I you can have this ten bucks if I stick this needle in you." You know, they do that, right? Don't they? So is that just about, I mean, you know, we've had, we've had Manitoba and Alberta. We've had, we've had premiers offering money. I mean, in, in both Manitoba and Alberta, there was a lottery system right. to try to entice people to, you know, you had a, I think at one point they were paying a hundred dollars in Alberta if you yeah. had not previously uh, gotten injected with, uh, with the COVID shot. Um, as well as a chance to win at a prize of some, I don't know if it's a million dollars or a hundred thousand or whatever, which is an inducement. If a doctor offered anybody money to pursue a certain medical treatment, that would be contrary to medical ethics. Well, just the point I was trying to make actually was to demonstrate that you were, it sounded like you were talking about a mandatory 
vaccine that is, you know, where they would hold you down and give you the shot, that would be assault. That's kind of what I was trying to draw. So well, don't be surprised attention. if we get to that point. I mean, in, okay. in, in, uh, in the Northern Territory of Australia right now, they are locking up people in camps. Uh, the government officials are quite public about this. All to be helpful, of course, to help those poor Aboriginals, or I think they're called Aborigines in Australia. To, you know, and I'm being sarcastic here. It is to help the the Aborigines who can't sufficiently uh, social distance from each other. And there, there's whole bunches of them living together in the same house. So we're going to help them out by locking them up in these uh, COVID camps. Uh, there's also an Australian politician saying that anybody who disagreed with with uh, mandatory vaccines or anybody who disagreed with this particular vaccine is an anti-vaxxer, full, full stop. You're an anti-vaxxer. If you don't support taking this vaccine uh, and if you don't support this vaccine being mandatory, you are an anti-vaxxer. This yeah. is such... It's that uh, second step there where they kind of go off the rails, though, right? You know, I mean, you can support. I mean, vaccine, most of but. I know lots of people that have are very comfortable with the fact that they, as babies, got their polio shot. I'm one of these people. I got my when I was a baby. I got my my polio shot. Uh, I was talking to my mom the other day, who said that some of these other mumps and uh, chickenpox and measles vaccines didn't come along until the 70s, which was a few years after I was born. So she said that I was, as a baby, I had the measles and the mumps and the chickenpox. I got all these diseases. Uh, but, I, you know, I did get, uh, which were not fatal, obviously, I'm, I'm alive today. But the polio vaccine, well, polio was crippling and it was deadly. And if it didn't kill you, it could cripple you for life. And so I had a polio vaccine as a baby. I have no regrets. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Uh, my wife and I, our four kids, have had various vaccines over the years. And this is uh, anecdotally what, what I have found in my conversations with people is that, that most of the people opposed to the uh, this COVID, who are not taking the COVID vaccine, they have all the other vaccines. They're not anti-vaxxers. They're against this particular vax. And then you have people like Daniel Smith in Alberta, who's had the vaccine, who is radically against mandating it for the whole population. Mm. We've had Dr. Jay uh, Bhattacharya, one of our expert witnesses, who is in favor of this new COVID vaccine and completely against making it mandatory. Right. So there, there, there's real nuances. So when you get, I find that absolutely frightening that you would have a, a politician or anybody else say, unless you support Unless you think that this particular vaccine is wonderful and, and you you have taken it or you're going to take it, and, and unless you support mandatory vaccinations, you are an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> right. Because that has connotations, because anti-vaxxer has a negative connotation amongst most Canadians and presumably most Australians, most people in the world would say, well, if you're an anti-vaxxer, like if you're one of these people that, that wants no vaccines whatsoever, you're a kook and an idiot. Now, that opinion might be uh, grossly mistaken. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, it's not my opinion. I, I think the polio vaccine and other vaccines are just fine. Thank you very much. I'm not against them. But this is political dishonesty to take what is a, a negative label. Anti-vaxxer is, for most people, is a negative label. And then to apply that to double vaccinated people who are against mandatory vaccines. Right. Yeah. Well, I think in the long run, this is going to be the thing that hurts their case the most, uh, as we'll see. 
But in the case of the universities, I, I just wanted to go back a second here to the very beginning where you talked about it violating Nuremberg codes, et cetera. You've told me in other programs regarding the Canadian Charter that universities are subject to the Charter as well, and that in Alberta, be- yes. Outside of Alberta, no. Oh. We've got we've got mixed law on this. There have been court rulings in British Columbia and Ontario saying that the Charter does not apply to universities. And then mm. in Alberta, we've had an Alberta Court of Appeal ruling. Well, two, two, several, in fact. Uh, the most recent was from almost two years ago. Was from January. 2000, and that was U Alberta Pro-Life versus the University of Alberta, or the Board of Governors of the University of Alberta, and the court ruled that the charter does apply to universities, so that's the case in Alberta. What about Saskatchewan? Uh, When this issue comes before a Saskatchewan court, the Saskatchewan court will decide whether to follow the Alberta precedent or whether to follow the BC and Ontario precedent. And your guess is as good as mine as to which way they're going to go. But apart from, it doesn't, I mean, it matters, but there are other grounds. Uh, There is a contract between the university student and the university. And it might not be, you know, a one-page car rental contract where all the terms are set out. It's not a contract where some contracts whether they're two pages or 26 pages, they say all the terms of the contract are set out here and both parties sign on the dotted line. You know, that, that would be a typical business contract. That's not the only kind of contract. There's a contract between the student and the university. And this has been found by the Supreme Court of Canada. It's not like a new theory that I'm advancing. The student pays money to the university in exchange for the university provides courses and education and a campus learning environment, and the opportunity to listen to speakers. Uh, The student, in addition to an obligation to pay money, the student has to adhere to the code of conduct. And so there is a contract, and the terms of the contract, a lot of them are just unspoken. You know, if you're going to spray paint something on the wall of the university, uh, you might get expelled. (laughs) You know, that not everything is spelled out. You know, if you rape somebody or assault somebody, or if you're repeatedly disruptive in class, you could get kicked out. Uh, if a university tramples on the free speech rights of a campus pro-life group, they're going to get sued by the justice center and the universities are going to lose. You know, so there's, uh, there's contractual terms. What the universities have done and colleges all over Canada is they they had a contract in August or September where they said, yes, we'll take your tuition. Thank you very much. Uh, you don't have to be injected with the COVID vaccine. And then suddenly in October, the university announces, in order to continue your studies after January 1st, you need to get injected twice with the experimental substance. And this is a brand new contractual term that the university is forcing on students, and it's illegal. Why? Because you cannot unilaterally change the terms of a contract. Even your utilities company, if they want to raise their rates, what they typically do is they send out, they send you a letter and they say, starting uh, January 1st, our rates are going to go up to such and such. So they give everybody that advance notice and they give people an opportunity to back out and go to a different supplier. It's too bad we couldn't do that with government when they raise our taxes and say, oh, thank you. No, I'm going to tear up the contract and I'm going to get looked after by another government. It doesn't work that way. But at least for private companies, when they raise their rates, 
if you stick with that company after having been told that the rates are going up, you have thereby consented to the change in the terms of the contract. So there's nothing wrong with changing the terms of the contract. People do that all the time. What's wrong is, and what is illegal, is for one party to a contract to unilaterally say, I'm doing this and changing it. So the universities are in breach of contract because they're suddenly telling students that uh, they have to get two injections in order to stay on as students and continue with their studies. And there are so many people, they're in their last year of engineering, they're in their last year of nursing, they're in the final year of their PhD or their master's program. And many of these students have no need to uh, even be on campus necessarily. Uh, But universities are playing hardball. They're not providing accommodation in most cases. They're not saying, and this is just, this is so ideological, right? Because up until six months ago, uh, every university in Canada was was running on Zoom only, pretty much, right? All these universities mm-hmm. didn't have classes. Uh, first-year students were robbed of their special opportunity to really experience campus life. You know, something I remember very fondly, you know, 18 years old, first time living away from home. You're on a big campus. You're living in residence. Uh, there's just excitement in the air. Just, you know, this whole special experience of first-year university students – So many young people were deprived of that when they started school in September of 2020 because the universities were online for eight months. And now suddenly we're in the uh, 2021-22 school year, and all of a sudden universities find it impossible to accommodate students by saying that the unvaxxed can take in a class by way of Zoom. Right. Right. So this is more evidence that the only science here is political science. There's no reason why universities cannot accommodate unvaccinated students by way of Zoom classes, although that doesn't even address the big elephant in the room, which is why should there be any pressure on young and healthy adults or anybody to get a vaccine that does not stop the spread of covid Right. Yeah. And now things are advancing even faster now with the new variant coming along. And uh, there are a lot of questions about the efficacy. Oh, and surprise, surprise, these these vaccines don't work against the new variants. I predicted that. <laughs> I predicted that well over a year ago. So when the vaccines come, how, how why, why would you be confident that they're going to work against new variants when it's in the nature of viruses to mutate and to be slightly different every year? Even the annual flu shot is a lot of guesswork. So this is the big problem. To tell students either get injected or get expelled is a huge amount of duress because when you're deprived of your uh, university education, very often for most careers, most professions these days, at least most of the better paying ones, uh, doctor, lawyer, teacher, accountant, nurse, uh, there's a long list of uh, you know well-paying jobs that you cannot get into that career without the university degree. So when you threaten to expel a student from university, it's not like they can go somewhere else, Mm. right? And it's a huge amount of pressure, and and it's a blatant violation of the Nuremberg Code. I'm going to read a brief section of that. I had a column in the post-millennial. Yeah, that's actually what I was about to reference, the fact that you wrote about all the universities across Canada in a column that went up just shortly after the press release from the Justice Center went out about Saskatchewan. 
We're also, I'll mention briefly, we're, we're acting for two students who are going to be suing Seneca College. I think we're filing the papers in the next week or two. Seneca College in Ontario. Mariana Costa is two semesters away from finishing her fashion arts program at Seneca College. And Crystal Love is a single mother studying to become a veterinary technician. Seneca College is forcing both Mariana and Crystal to get COVID shots or else throw away their years of education, their careers and their future and their livelihoods. And Seneca College is not providing uh, Crystal and Mariana with the options of completing their programs online. So Seneca College is one of them and there will be more that we are taking to court. Uh, I'm sorry that, you know, we're doing this only in, in December. We've been understaffed. We've been all the lawyers are working very long hours. We're slowly hiring more and more lawyers. Um, we've had uh, Hatem Kerr is another lawyer in Ontario who has uh, who has joined us and got another lawyer that will be joining us in January. Uh, still has to work some things out with her current employer, but um, yeah, we are we are taking colleges and universities to court. Yeah, well, so, you know the court fight is going to go on for a long time. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the disgraces of Canada's judicial system is that uh, things that should take days and weeks, you know, and, and maybe months at most, actually take years. And you know, I've always been an advocate for smaller government. I mean, I worked for the Taxpayers Federation. My my daily work was to advocate for lower taxes, less waste, and accountable government. So. I'm a fan of small government, but if there's one area where government ought to be spending twice as much money as, as what it is right now, it would be on the court system and double the number of judges so that we can get court rulings in days and weeks and in some cases months rather than right now. Uh, every court action, you're looking at years before you get a ruling. And that's absolutely disgraceful when governments are violating our constitutional rights and freedoms and then you commence a court action and the government says oh yeah we'd like another eight months <laughs> you know right. that's what the alberta government asked for and got it uh it's just a disgrace and i think i i won't blame the individual judges i mean for the most part uh i, I mean i i do think that they should definitely be demanding of governments that they produce evidence immediately when you've already been violating constitutional rights and freedoms for months on end, a government should be required by the court to produce their evidence to support that immediately. Uh, they shouldn't be given six or seven months, as, as was given to the um, to the Alberta government. Uh, but that aside, it's not really the fault of judges that things take years to wind their way through the courts. It's uh, it's just the fact that we don't have enough judges and perhaps not enough courtrooms. And government should literally double spending on this. Well, it's to me, it's very indicative of the fact that Canada doesn't seem to take rights, individual rights, very seriously at all. Not in the last 20 months. Because in the United States, where you had lockdowns were brought down, uh, I believe, was, was at the same time or a similar time, right? March 15th or thereabouts, mm. give or take a few days. You had all these American uh, state governments imposing uh, lockdowns of various kinds, various degrees, and some were short-lived and others not. Some were more severe, others were were less severe. But there have been so many court rulings in the United States 
coming out in respect of municipal and county and state and federal lockdown measures. Yeah, they've got a better court system there, definitely. And they, for- they take it a little more seriously. I mean, that's the thing. I've said it last week to Leighton and the week before that, I think, to you, that uh, you know maybe we need to strip out this demonstrably justified clause in order to get people to take it more seriously. But that might be the great lesson for Canada in the long run. We have to take our individual rights more seriously. That's uh, certainly the opinion of this guy. Tilly Wright, please continue. So the Nuremberg Code requires that subjects are, quote, to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion. So... That's the Nuremberg Code. Well, that's well, being blatantly violated. When you say get injected or get expelled, is it force? No fraud, no deceit, no duress? Yes. Overreaching? Yes. Ulterior form of constraint or coercion? Yes. So it's a blatant violation of the Nuremberg Code. Well, how does that apply in Canada? Can a judge say, well, you know, it's Nuremberg. Hey, so what? It's It will be brought up in court and... It is. It is not legally binding. It is okay. not a. Uh, it's not a law. It's analogous to the 1948 uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Canada's federal and provincial governments can violate that with impunity, but you can bring it up in court and say, you know, by the way, Section 26, Sub 3 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, says that that parents have the right to choose the kind of education that shall be given to their children. It carries some weight. Okay. Uh, I don't think the government looks good, or I don't think a university looks good going into court being a blatant violator of the Nuremberg Code. Okay, that's true. I just wondered whether it had much force. So it doesn't. And it's not. It it's not. Le- it's not legally binding, but it is a pr- principle of medical ethics that the court is at liberty to take note of. And so one of the arguments that we can raise in court is to say that the university is violating basic medical ethics, which is that any medical treatment, and here's another authority, the Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights provides, quote, any preventive diagnostic and therapeutic medical intervention is only to be carried out with the prior free and informed consent of the person concerned based on adequate information. It goes on to say the consent should, where appropriate, be expressed and may be withdrawn by the person concerned at any time and for any reason without disadvantage or prejudice. Well, disadvantage and prejudice is exactly what uh, universities are imposing on on students right now by threatening them with uh, expulsion. Now, I anticipate that in court, the universities might argue that they're doing this uh, because it's a public health emergency and it's a crisis and we need to uh, keep everybody safe and therefore we need to force everybody or if not forcing them by holding them down on the ground and, and physically injecting it, at least force them through pressure to get vaccinated in order to protect everybody in order to save lives. Okay. That'll be their see. argument. All right. And to that, to that I say... <laughs> okay, I was going to say, and to that you say, go ahead. To that I would say, you know, that argument might hold some water, 
you know, we've all heard it said, and, and I think it is true, rights are not absolute. So your right to bodily autonomy is not absolute. If this vaccine, if two things, at least a bunch of things that need to be true, but, but I'll, I'll mention two only. Two things need to be true in order for the university to win. First of all, COVID needs to be an unusually deadly killer like the Spanish flu of 1918 or like the bubonic plague in medieval Europe. It needs to be a real deadly killer, which we know from the government's own data and statistics that COVID is not having an impact on population life expectancy. Yes, uh, it does shorten the life by uh, lifespan by several months of some people, uh, but it's not like... Well, in contrast, the annual flu every year used to kill babies and one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds would die of the annual flu. Uh, COVID does not threaten the children from, uh, from birth to age five. So in terms of impact on population life expectancy, COVID's impact is pretty minimal. So that's one reason why we shouldn't have any of these policies, not mandatory vaccinations, not lockdowns, um, not lockdown measures like masking and social distancing, not the travel restrictions, uh, not the shutting down of, of you know, shredding the, the social fabric of society. We shouldn't have any of these measures. So that's the first point. Second point is that the, the vaccine does not stop the spread. We know this from uh, Israel, uh, Ireland, in Europe has a 94% vaccination rate and covid is rampant in Ireland they're talking they're going to they're going to impose a curfew on the pubs pubs have to close at midnight well pubs are full of vaccinated people because if you're not if you're part of the 6% of the Irish that's not vaccinated you're not allowed to set foot in a pub so there are no unvaccinated people in a pub it's only the vaccinated people and yet pubs are going to be closed at midnight Apart from the pubs, if you've got a 94% vaccination rate, the fact that you've got a COVID problem tells you that the vaccine uh, does not stop the spread. Then we've got Gibraltar with a 100% vaccination rate, uh, actually 120, 140% when you count all the uh, vaccinated Spaniards that are working in uh, Gibraltar. 100% vaccination rate, and the government is saying, no, no indoor social gatherings, you know, celebrate Christmas outdoors in small numbers, socially distanced. <laughs> yeah, that didn't so, work before, so let's do it again. Yeah. yeah, so we've got massive vaccine failure in, and let me be specific here, we've got vaccine failure in terms of stopping the spread, which should not surprise us because the vaccine manufacturers themselves have said publicly that the only benefit to the vaccine is that it helps the individual recipient to experience less severe symptoms of COVID than what they would have experienced without the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So that's it. So COVID doesn't stop the spread. So those are the two fundamental flaws. Uh, so COVID is not the Spanish flu of 1918. It is not an unusually deadly, uh, unusually deadly killer. Yes, it's a deadly killer for a small demographic for certain people. If you're 85 years old in a nursing home, you've got cancer and heart disease and emphysema, then yes, COVID is the deadly killer that's going to shorten your life by several months. Because uh, without COVID, you'd be dead pretty soon anyways. But 
Yes, COVID will shorten your life. So apart from a very small demographic, COVID is not an unusually deadly killer and the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. So there's no basis, there's no rational basis, there's no scientific basis, there's no intelligent basis for pressuring university students to get this vaccine. Right. But could you run into the same problem you ran into in Manitoba with the judge saying that, well, I don't want to adjudicate the science. I'm not qualified to adjudicate the science. So right, which I'm is an that, abdication of judicial well, responsibility I mean, because did. when he the government the side of the government, so he did adjudicate the science even by default, right? You know, even so. by default, he did. Uh, he ruled on the science whether he intended to or not. Um, if you make a decision, you end up picking a side. That's just inevitable. So, if both Absolutely. sides are presenting science, you're going to come down on the side of somebody's science, whether it's because of the science or not. That's, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, the the students, uh, as a starting point, because of bodily autonomy, which is protected by Section 7 of the Charter, as a starting point, they, they have a, a right to not get injected. And that right, I think, is, even, is strengthened even further by virtue of the fact that the students, most of whom are young and healthy, and, you know, maybe there are some 85-year-olds in nursing homes with cancer and emphysema and heart disease that are, you know, pursuing online courses. But th those ones wouldn't be on campus too much. But but by and large, the university students are people that are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and a smattering of, of uh, people in, in their late 20s, and, and also some people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, but those are small numbers. But it's not just age, it's comorbidities as well, right? So there are people that might be susceptible to disease. Um, in which case, they should, if they feel that the benefits of the vaccine are greater than the risks, they should go get the vaccine so that if they get sick with COVID, which of course the vaccine does not stop you from getting sick with COVID, it just reduces the symptoms. So if somebody uh, is immune compromised and terrified of COVID, they should go. They should go get the vaccine for themselves, but don't impose their fear on other people by demanding irrational policies, such as requiring everybody to get vaccinated. Right, of course, and I think that's the the nut of the argument here. However, you know we have many court cases going ahead because of this. I, well, anyways, any other points to be made on that particular uh, file, John? I know you made quite a few in your in your article here. I'll, I'll, I'll close on that before we move on to the before we move on to the next topic. I'll close on the university file by by saying that they are unfortunately uh, further tarnishing their reputation with the cancel culture, uh, with the way that um, universities have uh, dishonored and disrespected free speech on campus. And in fact, capitulated, most universities have completely capitulated to campus culture. And anybody that wants Cancel to, yeah. yeah, anybody that wants to speak on campus that is not, you know, a social justice warrior promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion is in risk of, of getting canceled and universities pander to the mob. So they've already harmed their reputation immensely as not being places where truth is sought. Uh, where people arrive at truth by expressing ideas and debating ideas. But now with these mandatory vaccinations, they are further tarnishing their reputation uh, by showing that they're clearly they're anti-science by, and, and they're human rights violators. 
Yeah, so that's the surprise. Yeah. You've gone from, you know, you're not honoring your mission to pursue truth. You're pandering to cancel culture. You're promoting uh, the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion ideology. So they already harmed their reputation. And now they're going from bad to worse by by being uh, anti-science and by being human rights violators through these mandatory vaccination policies. Very sad. Right. Well, I wanted to throw this in here because we did mention, or I did mention, the new variant that's coming out of supposedly Botswana or Africa at the same time that people are referencing Africa as having such a low rate of COVID. Shh, Kevin, don't mention that. The fact that what Africa six percent vaccinated and uh, gee what a surprise nobody uh, shockingly there's there's just not a big COVID problem there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there is it, there is a reason. I mean, I say that yeah. tongue in cheek. Part part of the reason is that Africa compared to Europe has a very young population. It's my understanding, and don't I have not researched this point. Uh, don't quote me on it, but it, it's somewhere near 50% of the population is under the age of 20 or some very high percentage. So you're going to get lower COVID rates in Africa anyways, or at least lower rates of people getting sick from COVID and dying of COVID, right? Because right. COVID can spread through the younger population and uh, children just shrug it off. Uh, they might feel a little sick for a day or two, but you know, children are not threatened by COVID. Uh, so part of the reason Africa has a lower COVID rate is it has a relatively young population. Right. Sure but that said, that. still. Well, why another is so- <laughs> theory I've read is that there was widespread use of uh, ivermectin over there due to parasites. That's its original uh, use. And so they have been using it over there quite readily, and that may have caused the, a low infection rate. Although not if you just right, because we know from we know from scientific literature, uh, peer-reviewed medical reports that uh, ivermectin has been successful in India and Japan and other countries. Right. So, and if it's widely used in Africa, that would. Uh, but speaking of kids, um, we've got a push now to get the youngsters vaccinated. Uh, Health Canada has proudly announced that uh, it's, uh, all of a sudden it's very safe to inject. Uh, kids ages 5 to 11 with the uh, new mRNA COVID vaccine, which has not been subjected to any long-term safety testing. But it's Never mind. 3,000 kids? They tried it on 3,000 kids? 3,000 so. kids, and it's been several months. And so, therefore, we declare that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what did, what did you make of that story where the uh, – the vaccine companies were trying to bury their their studies for fifty five years. Did you see that at all? No, they were. Oh, okay. I won't reference it a whole lot here. Maybe we'll get into that after you've had a chance to look at it. Anyways, yes, three thousand kids, a couple of months of testing, good to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me read. Uh, let me read a letter from uh, Alberta's chief medical officer. Dr. Dina Hinshaw, dated November 24th, 2021. This is a letter to parents and guardians. I'm going to go through it a paragraph at a time and debunk it. Uh, She opens by saying, COVID-19 continues to cause pressures on our healthcare system and has challenged our work, social and recreational activities, particularly for families with young children. I know that the pandemic has impacted children in many difficult ways, 
And now that Health Canada has approved the Pfizer BioNTech uh, Comirnaty COVID-19 vaccine made for young children aged 5 to 11 years, you may have questions about this vaccine. I want to share some information as you consider the option of immunization for your children. Okay, let me go through this. Uh, she opens it with a lie. COVID-19 continues to cause pressure on our healthcare system. Uh, yeah, so does cancer, uh, so do car accidents, uh, so does heart disease. Uh, COVID is one of the many illnesses that people struggle with. And if she's trying to argue that, that the healthcare system is overwhelmed by COVID, that's simply not true. We're getting photographs uh, and, and reports from healthcare workers on a regular basis showing empty hospitals in Alberta. Are we uh, getting photographs? You said we're on, on our website, uh, www.jccf.ca, we are posting photographs and, oh. and they are time stamped with uh, one of the Calgary hospitals that, uh, you know, wards are empty. Waiting times in the emergency room is, you know, 10 minutes. It's not five hours. Well, uh, they, they, so, had to, they had to do the whole pressure on the hospital thing because people weren't dropping dead in the streets like we saw at the beginning of the pandemic with those videos from China. You know, where people like fall it over. Well, it didn't happen over here. So No, it's happening now though with, with professional athletes and soccer soccer oh, yeah. players it that happens are mostly in stadiums. <laughs> it's happening now in stadiums with professional yeah. athletes who are in the prime of their lives who are super healthy who all of a sudden collapse. Yeah. And okay. of so course that's that not... has nothing to do with with uh with the vaccine. We mustn't uh, in any way suggest that. But you know, these Chinese videos from way back when with people dropping dead, that's not how you die of COVID. When you yeah. die of COVID, you're, you're sick, you're, uh, you're short of breath. And, uh, and of course, when you have health authorities suppressing early treatment with uh, ivermectin and, and zinc and vitamin D and basically not offering any kind of treatment, then the condition will get worse and worse and people will die. Well, my point was simply that that's why they had to move on to the healthcare system is under extreme pressure because they didn't have the scare tactic of this, uh, virus that was wiping out people as they were walking down the as they street. were walking down the street yeah. when the media does the same fear-mongering they will say we've we've got 491 uh, uh covid patients in in hospital okay yeah and we have eight and a half thousand hospital beds and what's the system there for if not to be used i mean it, it it's like some sacred cow some holy grail something that you know it, it's it's almost like it's a sin to use the healthcare system you know we have to keep it uh we mustn't contaminate it with patients needing medical care <laughs> you know, that's not ridiculous. our goal okay anyway. we've had 20 months uh jason kenny and uh or as i like to say premier premier dina hinshaw and her lovely assistant jason have had 20 months to increase health healthcare capacity they have failed to do so and this is just, it's dishonest fear-mongering to be suggesting that, that the hospitals are being flooded by COVID patients. Therefore, we should give up our rights, rights and freedoms and give up our right to bodily autonomy and just do as we're told, like a bunch of dumb sheep, because the healthcare system is being overrun. Anyway, so that was her opening line, was COVID-19 continues to cause pressure on our healthcare system. Well, mm -hmm. And COVID-19 has challenged our work, social, and recreational activities, particularly for families with young children. No, COVID has not done that. Dina Hinshaw's lockdowns have done that for the past 20 months. And now the vaccine passports where you've got teenagers that cannot participate in their uh, soccer, basketball, hockey, martial arts. We've got 13-year-olds that cannot 
participate in sports in Alberta uh, because Dina Henshaw and Jason Kenny have said that you uh, teenage you cannot participate in sports unless you're double vaccinated. Now, Dina Henshaw did make some announcement in uh, in September saying that you know the the standard should be applied loosely to uh, you know not be a barrier to teenagers taking part in sports. Well, the fact is that the reality on the ground, I don't know if she's been there lately. I think she spends a lot of time in her ivory tower. But the reality on the ground is that there are many teenagers in Alberta that unless they get two injections with the experimental, and I say experimental because it's not been subjected to long-term safety testing. Uh, if you don't get your two injections, you cannot participate in sports. You can't go to the gym. And that's true for adults as well as teenagers. Right. Younger kids are also impacted on this because there are parents who have not had the two injections, cannot accompany their five-year-old girl into a sports facility or a dance studio to help their five-year-old change into her ballet outfit. There are parents that... That's the, the COVID f- force field that's stopping them. That's not the lockdown. No, I'm just... Yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is so intellectually dishonest to blame this on COVID when it's the, it, it's oppressive charter violating laws that are making it impossible for parents to go into uh, a hockey rink, a hockey arena, uh, to help their five year old or, or seven year old change into their hockey gear. Parents can't do that. So even, even there, the pressure is just intense. And then the lockdowns that, that we've had since March of 2020 have challenged our work, social, and recreational activities, not COVID. Okay, next paragraph. Health Canada approval for younger children was based on a clinical trial involving over 3,000 young children receiving the Pfizer vaccine. Now, interesting, she doesn't say where these 3,000 people were. Uh, there's no link to the study itself, so I guess you got to take her word for it. There's no uh, indication of when the study was conducted. So again, it's government talking down to us. Uh, if you ask these questions, you're going to get stonewalled. You're not going to get the information. She goes on to claim, this study found that vaccine efficacy, and then brackets protection level, against symptomatic COVID-19 was 90.7%, so 91%. Okay, that's interesting. I don't know how they uh, were able to determine that, considering that the kids don't get harmed by COVID. Uh, And there's no mention of numbers here, like how many kids got sick, and this would be mildly sick, uh, not in any danger of death. How many kids got uh, sick without the vaccine and how many of the 3,000 vaccinated kids got sick. So again, there's no link to the study. Uh, she goes on to claim this is similar to the level of protection that the vaccines provide for older children and adults. Well, kind of a, a nonsensical statement insofar as children have a very strong, robust, natural immunity. It's even stronger than what people have in their 20s and the people in their 20s have stronger immunity than people in their 30s. People in their 30s have stronger immunity than people in their 40s and so on. There's a natural decline there. And uh, so the whole thing's nonsensical because kids are not threatened by COVID. 
Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University, who's authored a report that's posted on our website, uh, also references the science telling us that children are not spreaders of the virus. When a child has the virus in their system, it's because they got it from a parent or another adult. Children are not spreaders. Children are not threatened. So the whole this whole research is rather bizarre and, and, and interesting. And then she goes on, the final, the final kicker. While some children in the study experienced mild vaccine reactions like a sore arm or fever, there were no safety issues found. Well, again, we're how many months after this study? This study was concluded last week, last month. Uh, from when till when was it conducted? Can we get any information on this? Was this an American study? Was this 3,000 Canadian children? No information provided. But to say that no safety issues were found, this is how the government and the media operate. They say something that is technically true, but they mm -hmm. miss out. Like I'll, uh, Dina Hinshaw, how many times has she trotted up to the microphone at a news conference to breathlessly announce that another six people have died of COVID in the past week and just doesn't mention the other 494 people who also died in the past week, right? right. She doesn't provide any context. Uh, Alberta has 4.4 million people. There's over 500 people that die every single week. Uh, and yet she's going to call a news conference and the fawning media, who have not asked this lady one difficult question in 20 months, unless you consider, uh, you know, why don't you lock us down more to be a difficult question? And maybe, maybe it is for her. Uh, but she calls a news conference to announce that, that six people or 11 people have died of COVID in the past week. Typically, Maybe some weeks there's somebody who was uh, 50 or 60, but typically these are all people in their 70s and 80s with three or more health conditions. So it's not really earth shattering, newsworthy that, that they passed away because people who are older and very sick do pass away. And she goes to the microphone and, and says, oh, six people died of COVID in the past week. 11 people died of COVID in the past week. She doesn't mention that there's the 490 something other people that died of, of, of cancer and heart disease, and that have died because of lockdown measures, because she canceled their surgery. She canceled their diagnostic procedure. She canceled the pacemaker surgery that Jerry Dunham needed in May of 2020 to stay alive. She doesn't mention the uh, fentanyl deaths that oh, yeah. are mm. you know increasing. She doesn't mention the drug overdoses, which have been increasing because of her lockdown measures. All she does is she talks about the uh, six or or 10 COVID deaths in the past week without reference to the 490-something other deaths, many of which were lockdown deaths, which, of course, she's not exploring. She's not looking into that. Uh, you try and go on to Alberta government websites and look up lockdown deaths, lockdown harms, and you're not going to find government studies. They're not looking into this. They don't want to know. They don't want us to know. Yeah, this is a long letter, and... Uh... We don't have a whole lot of time, John. So I, I want you to at least get to the next two paragraphs because uh, actually that's the one that I'm concerned with. But you go ahead. Okay. So Dina Henshaw goes on to write, ensuring COVID-19 vaccine safety is critically important. We closely watch for reports of adverse events following immunization in Alberta, the rest of Canada, and around the world. Uh, for a summary of all adverse events following immunization in Alberta to date. You can go to the COVID-19 statistics on vaccination. Okay, good. This is good. We'll have to wait and see how thorough, diligent, and honest they are in their reporting. 
Uh, and I'm sorry I sound cynical, but after 12 months of being lied to by the likes of uh, Jason Kenney and Dina Henshaw, continuing to fearmonger with the false claim that COVID is this unusually deadly killer that we should all be afraid of, I am skeptical. Right. Uh, but in all sincerity, I hope that the government is honest and rigorous and comprehensive on reporting the vaccine harms. Now, she goes on to say adverse events do happen, but they are very rare. Yeah. Go uh, ahead. Read the next sentence. I just want to, you need to read the next sentence. Okay. Of 6,796,955 doses administered, so let's just round it up to the nearest million. Of 7 million doses administered in Alberta to date, across all ages, there have been 2,005 adverse events following immunization. So that is or, point zero th- Yeah. Or, or 0.03%. I yeah, just, the so it's 3% I to, of yeah. 3%. Right. So pretty darn, 2,000 adverse events, 7 million vaccinations, pretty rare. Well, I'm glad you read that whole sentence uh, before you rounded it up, and you were very specific because we got some very specific numbers in that paragraph. Now, read the next one. Hmm. <laughs> oh, this one's, this one's hilarious. Whether to vaccinate your children is an important choice. Now, I laugh and I cry when I hear her talking about choice because only two and a half months ago, uh, it, was an, it was a choice that adults had to uh, get vaccinated or not. Now, the pro-mandatory vaccine people will say, well you, well, you still have a choice. Well, yes, but now it's not a free choice because your choice is to continue earning money to put food on your table and support yourself and your loved ones, uh, to continue with your job and get the vaccine or don't get the vaccine and lose your job. That is now your choice to continue with your university education and get your degree or get the vaccination. If you don't, if you don't get the vaccination, you cannot continue your university studies. If you don't get the vaccination, you cannot go to restaurants, movie theaters. Uh, you cannot go to the gym. You cannot go to the swimming pool. You cannot take your family to enjoy uh, the rec center that your municipal tax dollars have paid for, et cetera, et cetera. So there is no free choice. There's technically still a choice, yes, a choice to get the vaccine or lose your job, get kicked out of university and be a second-class citizen. So that's a choice that's been brought down to now. So mark my words, uh, this is November the 27th today that we're recording this podcast. Uh, whether to vaccinate your children is an important choice. If things don't change, uh, if, if the way things are going with the trends that we've seen in the past few months, uh, very soon it will not be a choice and a pressure will be brought to bear by Dina Hinshaw and Jason Kenney uh, are going to pressure parents to get their kids vaccinated Mark my words, that will happen unless there's a significant change in the direction of our culture and society. Right. Okay, keep going. Okay. Dina writes, I encourage you to base your decision on the available evidence after weighing the benefits and risks. Oh, this is good. She's acknowledging there's risks. Okay, that's nice. No such acknowledgement was too forthcoming when she was shoving lockdowns down our throats and taking away our charter rights and freedoms. Uh, she, she, she said, you know, a lockdown, I, I know lockdowns are hard, but you know, 
Now, let's move on with how we're going to proceed with imposing them. There is never any serious thought given to the risks of lockdowns. But, okay, nice of her to say, uh, I encourage you to base your decision on the available evidence after weighing the benefits and risks. Although the risk of severe disease, hospitalization, and death due to COVID-19 is low for children aged 5 to 11, I hope that you will consider the following benefits of immunization. Okay, now I got to... I got to sound like that woman in that meatloaf song. Stop right there. Okay. Okay. So you think about that sentence that you referenced above with the very specific information, 6,000, or 6,795,000. This sentence here that you just read is pretty much the only sentence we have on how infectious this disease is for children. Right. That well, is what to say I it's to low is, is to say it's low is misleading. I mean, well, how I don't. Well, when something's what? non-existent, it's misleading to say, "Well, the the risk of that is low." Well, no, the the risk of that is is statistically non-existent. You know, if if there's been uh, one great white shark attack near Victoria, British Columbia, in the past century, uh, to say. That your your risk of getting attacked by a great white shark when swimming in the in the ocean near Victoria is low. It's beyond low. It's almost non-existent. Okay, if again, if we've had one great white shark attack in the past century in Victoria, because the great whites don't don't go up that far north. We had a thirteen-year-old in Ontario die with COVID uh, some six or nine months ago. Very very sad. Okay. And Yes, statistically, just, it's it's yeah. the lightning strikes again, right? You're, right, exactly. And a child's is... risk a child's risk of getting harmed or killed by a lightning strike is not low; it's virtually non-existent. Right. Well, they do actually make reference to a little bit of statistical evidence here. Uh, a couple of bullet points later, where she says, "While serious outcomes from COVID nineteen infection in children are rare throughout the pandemic." To date, there have been 78 cases hospitalized and 20 cases admitted to ICU in children 5 to 11. Okay, so, but there's no context there. No, because these, these uh, are, are these the PCR tested, right? Because what the hospitals do, if you come in, if you've had a heart attack or you've been in a car accident, and then they, they do a PCR test on you, which has a very high false positive rates. We know in Manitoba, uh, the government deliberately lied to the public uh, because they knew that 56% of the so-called positive cases that they were feeding uh, information to the media about, 56% of those people, at least 56%, did not have COVID. So a government in Manitoba lied. When you ask how many cycle thresholds the PCR test is being run on, you don't get a straight answer from anybody. So when she's talking about uh, COVID cases in uh, 20 cases admitted to ICU, that is probably, um, you know, and Dina's welcome to contact me. I mean, if she wants to be a guest on this podcast, I would that gladly would cool. have her on. So 20 cases admitted to ICU, uh, that may very well be, and probably is, uh, kids that were sick with something else, and they got the PCR test, and now they tested positive with COVID, and now suddenly they're a COVID patient. That could be. The point is, this fits the pattern that they've had since the beginning of the pandemic, of sort of obscuring the information that we need to know. And it's what makes people suspicious of their motives. You know, I mean, this is, it just fits the pattern. 
So the other thing that they're not mentioning, so so they they say serious outcomes from COVID. Well, that means you know death or some permanent damage are rare. And then they, they go on to, to talk about uh, 78 cases. Well, what's that? Just a positive PCR test? Or is that people well, that are sick? And are they, yeah. are they sick? Are they in hospital because they're sick Again, with COVID? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why can't they just be treated with uh, ivermectin and zinc and vitamin D? Uh, we could do a whole episode on that. We might we might tackle ivermectin in the future, and and because I think government's losing its war against ivermectin slowly but surely. But what they Pharma don't mention here, what Dina should mention, is that in Alberta, last time I looked, there was three thousand two hundred people that died with COVID. Uh, that's in a context of forty five thousand deaths globally, right? So. 3,200 sounds like a large number, and, and it is a large number, but so are the other 41,800, right? So you have 45,000 deaths in the last year and eight months, and of those 45,000 deaths, 3,200 are people who died with COVID, not necessarily of COVID. So how many under 20? Zero. Mm-hmm. There's not a single death. There's not a single COVID death in Alberta of anybody under the age of 20, uh, although there was a fake one that Dina Hinshaw lied about when she well, said he, there was a 14-year-old that died of COVID. He and died turns with out he COVID. Had, yeah, or died with COVID. But uh, she suggested, though. She suggested she counted him as one of the COVID deaths. Yeah, so she told the public here. that he died of COVID, and yet he had terminal brain cancer. Yeah, but he didn't get mentioned here. Now I can rest easy. You've got one minute to finish up the letter. <laughs> Ah, okay. She goes on to say preventing infection reduces. Uh, okay, there's still a lot we don't know about post-COVID syndrome in children, but it's possible for children to have symptoms for months after infection. Okay, so she's got no hard data there. It's a mere possibility. Okay, whatever. Even if they don't have severe outcomes at first, preventing infection reduces this risk. Well, you know what? Uh, Earth to Dina, the vaccine doesn't prevent infection. It only reduces the severity of the symptoms. So here we have more dishonesty. Preventing infection reduces this risk, she says. Now she goes on to say, uh, in Alberta, there have been 23 confirmed cases of myocarditis after COVID-19 vaccinations in youths ages 12 to 17. Thank you, Dina, for that honesty. Okay, at least it's it's a relief that the government is publicly talking about myocarditis. Uh, government's not in Alberta necessarily, but government officials around the world have also publicly talked about how the vaccine impacts menstruation in stopping menstruation or irregular cycles or triggering a sudden cycle that's out of rhythm. So it does mess with your menstruation. But then they change the science to say, but don't worry, menstruation has nothing to do with fertility. So we have billboards in Calgary. The Alberta government has billboards saying uh, COVID vaccines do not have any impact on fertility, which is misleading because one, we don't know the long-term effects. Uh, but secondly, Earth to Jason Kenny, maybe Jason Kenny doesn't understand the, the relationship between menstruation <laughs> and fertility. But when when the vaccine impacts menstruation, the vaccine necessarily impacts fertility. So you got another government lie on a billboard when they say that the vaccine has no impact on fertility. There is a sentence here that was new to me, actually. I had not Hmm. heard this before. And that is, quote, 
It is also important to remember that the risk of developing myocarditis is significantly higher following COVID-19 infection than following vaccination. I had never heard that before. That's a new fact to me. Yeah, you know, I, I'm tempted to ask for the source, but they don't they don't provide sources. For no footnotes claims. here. Yeah, no footnotes here. No. How to get your child vaccinated? Um, two doses are needed to be fully protected. Yeah, protected from what? COVID doesn't threaten kids. So to talk about protecting your five to eleven year old with this vaccine is already misleading. And then, of course, she says, while in other age groups, we've seen that taking other vaccines with COVID vaccine has been safe and effective. There we go. Well, safety, we don't know. We have preliminary results suggesting the vaccine is not safe. Uh, We have no long-term studies. And if it's effective, why do you need to get another one after six months? And then your third, and then your fourth, and then your fifth, and then your sixth, then your seventh. Uh, I would ask people, (laughs) here's a fun question to ask your friends. How many polio vaccines have you had? And anybody that's had it will say one. <laughs> yes. You don't. You don't. You don't need a new polio vaccine. That there is an effective vaccine. You get it once, and you're good for life. And if I'm wrong on that point, maybe maybe there's a second time when you're when you're six or twelve. But I doubt it. Uh, but here, how effective is a vaccine that you? It only lasts for six months. So you have to get another one, another one, another one. Now I'll just let you know we're headed towards a two-hour program if we keep going at this pace. So maybe uh, you would just want to hit a couple of significant points. And uh, In her closing, she says, uh, she lies again. The pandemic continues to create stress for our children and families. So if you need support or information about mental health and well-being, please visit the Alberta Health Services website, Help in Tough Times. Or you can call HealthLink for information and help by dialing 811. So, no, the pandemic does not continue to create stress for our children and families. It's the lockdown measures uh, for the past 20 months and the mandatory vaccines and the vaccine passports that are creating stress for children and families, not the virus. Maybe we should end with the quote from the Alberta Health Services website on the pandemic. They say... There is a pandemic of misinformation. Mm, Yes, there certainly is, Dina. And you can cure it. (laughs) Righto. At the very conclusion of my last comment, she thanks me. Mm. I mean, it's a general letter, but actually, no, it is addressed to me because I've got kids in schools. And uh, so Dina has addressed this letter to dear parents and guardians. So I am one of the parents that Dina is talking to. And she says at the very end of the letter, she says, I want to thank you for all you have done to keep our families and communities healthy and safe. And so, Dina, you're welcome. I am trying to keep our families and communities safe from your government tyranny. And I'm trying to keep us healthy by fighting against your toxic public health measures that have inflicted so much harm and suffering on Albertans and continue to cause harm today. So uh, you're welcome. Yes, I am trying to keep people healthy. Okay. And uh, just as a footnote, my child is grown and uh, he is actually not on this continent. So I guess it doesn't apply to me. However, that's a great point to uh, end our episode 41 of Justice with John Carpe. Thanks so much, John. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin. Take care.